0: This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. The other week I spoke to a big deal television executive, a man responsible for more crap TV on our sets than either he or I care to remember. To be fair, he's provided an equal number of classics, I'm sure. But he made a very good point when he told me there's no exercise quite as pointless as trying to argue with the taste of the public. In show business, the public is always right. Their choices may not be your choices. They may not even be their choices in six months or so. But those are the tickets being sold right now. This week sees a film that attempts to second-guess the taste of the audience of 1970. Misbehaviour is a potentially fascinating, lightly fictionalised story about that year's Miss World pageant. No matter how cheesy it looks to today's audience, the English-based beauty contest was just about the biggest thing on TV. It even outrated the moon landing. And for the Miss World competition, what about this year's special guest? Who have you got lined up for us? (laughs) <laughs> Who indeed, boys, eh? Who indeed? Ladies and gentlemen, a warm round of applause, please, for our seven lovely fun. Just as the burgeoning women's liberation movement was taking aim at, let's face it, a pretty easy target, so an anti-apartheid group was using Miss World as a stick to beat the South African government and, by implication, racism itself. Before I got on the plane... They showed me all these photographs of people I'm supposed to have nothing to do with. What kind of people? Certain journalists. A man called Peter Hein, Political people. Political activists tend not to take on faceless multinational corporations or governments and their armies. They prefer to target things like Miss World or sports events or rock tours because they're popular. People like them and therefore they'll be upset when they're disrupted. The downside is that by trashing the public's amusements, you can come across as pompous middle class killjoys. Until history catches up with you, of course. Do you have any other ambitions? Actually, I've always wanted to work in broadcasting. Sounds as if you're after my job. Perhaps you should be the one interviewing me. I'd love to. On on second thoughts, you look like the sort of person who might get my secrets out of me. (laughs) Today, beauty pageants in Britain, and New Zealand for that matter, are pretty much a non-event. It's been years since they were on primetime TV, but astonishingly, they're still going strong elsewhere, particularly in the so-called third world, which ended up becoming a major part of the plot of misbehaviour, to the surprise, I suspect, of most of the people making it. If being smart is all it takes, then how come no black girl has ever won this competition? Maybe sometimes wickling isn't enough. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to imply that you couldn't win. Meanwhile, proving once again that the public is always right, whether they're right or not, is a totally unnecessary follow-up to the charming A Street Cat Named Bob. The public, God bless them, insisted on a sequel, whether there was a sequel to be had or not. And a Christmas gift from Bob even admitted the obvious problem. Congratulations, though, on the new book. Or should I say commiserations? I reckon that's the look on your face. You did. You haven't started it yet, have you? Not yet, no. (laughs) I can't, um, unsettle on a story. I know the feeling... Another regular demand from the public is an updated version of a childhood favourite for that audience's own children. They, we're told, want something less dated than, say, the first version of Roald Dahl's The Witches, made in 1990. Your Excellency, do you have a plan? How can we possibly wipe out every child? Can lightning strike twice? And do 10-year-olds care about comparisons with films made 20 years before they were born? But first, look out sexist patriarchy. 1970 was a year of some serious misbehaviour. Last year, 100 million people tuned in live to Miss World. More viewers than for the moon landings or the World Cup final. Beautiful, darling. Mum, don't. You and your sisters used to love playing Miss World. We also like to eat our own snot. Miss World was one of those phenomena that were unaccountably popular in the 60s and 70s, like the black-and-white minstrel show and It's a Knockout. The myth was that mostly men watched Miss World, but that's simply not true. Everyone watched it, none more than young girls and their grandmothers. Miss World rehearsals are underway. Alphabetical order, come on, Yugoslavia. What are you doing up here? That's A. For all the fact that it almost literally objectified women, stand where you put, now go over there, it also offered an opportunity for people with few other advantages in life to go somewhere and be someone. Well, that was the fantasy being sold by Miss World showrunners Eric and Julia Morley. They must have no defects. And if they're not pretty much 36, 24, 36... Come on. The curves won't be in the right places. But we really believe beauty isn't just skin deep. The girls also get marks on charm, grace, deportment. Swimsuits. But by 1970, winds of change were starting to blow over the catwalks of beauty pageants. Groups of furious women were plotting to take down the patriarchy. Well, I say furious, but people like middle class Sally, Kira Knightley, and rough diamond Joe, Jesse Buckley, were having rather a good time sticking it to the man. What next? How about I'm not beautiful, I'm not ugly, I'm angry. Yeah! 1970 was the year it was decided that Miss World had had rather an easy time of it and had some serious comeuppance coming up. The plan was to invade the grand final and take on the Morleys and host comedian Bob Hope, Where It Hurt, on live TV. They're turning oppression into spectacle. Let's make a spectacle of our own. We'd infiltrate the theatre. We've just been smirking and watching like in a heist film. But in fact, Miss World was already having problems, racial this time. It was never a good look for the only contestant from the entire continent of Africa to be the white representative of apartheid South Africa. So the Morleys came up with a solution. Two finalists from that country, the white Miss South Africa, played by Emma Corrin just before conquering the world as Princess Diana in The Crown, and the black Miss Africa South. And the first... Like South African to take part I'm the first Miss Grenada. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Hope. The last time Bob guested on this show, he brought the winning girl home with him. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there were several women of color in the lineup that year, including the exotic Miss Grenada. Gugu and Bartha Raw is perfect as the Caribbean contestant. Beautiful but tough, decent and ambitious, in a just world, she'd be going somewhere. If I win, there will be little girls who might start to believe they have a place in the world. We're black. We're not going to be Miss World. You don't know me. It's not you we're angry at. I look forward to having your choices in life. But it's all just flashbulbs in your face. Not so many flashbulbs for me. Now, the point misbehaviour wants to make is that it's not a just world, except events keep tripping up easy point scoring. We see Sally, the would-be mature student, applying to a panel of sexist pigs. We can tell because they're secretly giving her points out of ten. Sally storms off, only to be told in the next scene that she's been accepted. So, you enjoying your seat at the table? Very much. Thank you. I'm starting a women's group. Every Wednesday, 29 Grosvenor Avenue, Islington, 6 o'clock, you should come. I mean, they're either sexist pigs or they're not, surely. And you could say the same thing about the film's punchline, which we're constantly told can't happen because of racism and the patriarchy. In fact, too many targets, including the public's dubious taste, are under attack in misbehaviour. And, like real life, they get tangled and contradictory in a way that needs rather a better film than this to make a decent drama out of them. I don't want you to think I'm some kind of brute that doesn't consider the feelings of women... I consider feeling women all the time. <laughs> Forget this. The events covered here had several ripple down effects on the future, but not quite the ones expected. Certainly, televised beauty pageants in Britain were demoted over the years, but rather more years than you'd expect. It also took another quarter of a century before apartheid was toppled in South Africa. the start of something, bad But Miss World itself continues to be hugely successful around the rest of the world, despite everything. Sexism, racism, entrenched power, the rights to watch what you like versus the wrongs of being out of step with history. It's a lot to try and cram into one little feel-good comedy. Baby I look exactly like my mother. I look like my mother's sofa. I look like the kind of woman I never ever want to be. Perfect. The best moments in misbehaviour are what seem like happy accidents. Keely Hawes as Julia Morley trying to keep her dignity despite Reese Ephens as Eric Morley. The obvious friendship between the two Miss South Africans that could only happen outside their country. And above all, the steely determination of the final winner who seemed the only person in the world who saw it coming and knew what it could mean. This competition makes us compete with each other and makes the world narrower for all of us in the end. Why should any woman have to earn her place in the world by looking a particular way? You don't. He doesn't. Why should we? Four years ago, a sweet little film came out based on an equally sweet little book about a cat, a street cat named Bob, and his friendship with a homeless busker called James, whose life he helped turn around. What was surprising about the film was that it didn't really feel like a story. If by story you mean bad guys thwarted, the hero gets the girl, huggings and learnings, it felt more like real life. Who'd like to hear some Christmas carols? Bob style. Well, night, night, get Last Christmas, me and Bob worked on the streets. Happy Christmas. In fact, it was largely based on real life, and the book's success led to a couple of sequels. You're probably wondering, as I was, how you follow up a story that's already achieved its happy ending. Can I say hello to Bob? Oh, Jacqueline Wilson. Hello, Jacqueline. Hi. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Hello, Bob. Love your books. Oh, that's so nice. not, not Bob, obviously. <laughs> you can't read, but, um, yeah. A Christmas gift from Bob opens at the successful launch of James's first book, a week or so before Christmas. He's starting to panic at having to write another one soon. Fortunately, he meets another author who offers some practical advice. I'm sure you'll get an idea soon. They often happen when you least expect it. So, good luck with it anyway. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. And you too encouraged by Jacqueline Wilson. James and Bob are heading home when they see a homeless kid being given a hard time by a lugubrious policeman. James intercedes, buys the kids some dinner and is reminded of another Christmas a year ago, pre-book, we assume, as we go into an extended flashback. Do you like it? I thought you could use some Christmas cheer. There's a lot of things I could use right now, like getting my gas and hot water back on. Haven't had a shower and. Three days. thought there was a nasty niff in the air. Times were tough for James and Bob back then. Even their new friend B can't cheer them up. One day, while our heroes are out busking in the rain and snow, they fall foul of a certain lugubrious policeman who decides Bob is being mistreated. That cat does not look happy to me. Can you control the dog? Wanting to chat to you about a couple of concerns. You can't take them away from me. Let's, it's in let's the Cat's best interest. Why a policeman should take it on himself to separate a boy and his cat is left a little opaque. And his boss, far from telling him to pull his head in, suggests he can do it, but do it carefully. If a guy who works on the street is being separated from his cat at Christmas, it's got to be done by the book. You got to help me. They're threatening to take Bob away. I think They should. No threats, no story, I suppose. In fact, the story of a Christmas gift from Bob hangs together even more loosely than the first film, but for some reason I found that appealing rather than a failing. It's basically a series of mini ups and downs. One day, James and Bob are a few pounds ahead. The next, the electricity is cut off and they're back where they started. Anyone who knows the man and the cat, get in touch. You have proved your love a hundred times over. It's not normal for a cat to be out in the streets. James gives Bob the choice to stay at home or go out with him and every day Bob goes with him The cast of the first film at least offered one or two familiar faces like the appealing Joanna Froggett from Downton Abbey In the sequel Luke Treadaway as James is essentially flying solo with any friends and foes in the story leaving very little impression as they help and hinder Why is it always about you James? What's happened? Breaking They took everything I'm on my way angels are all around us if we just know where to look. But of course the main reason to see the film is Bob the Cat, who plays himself with typically feline aplomb. Sadly, Bob died shortly after the film was finished and the internet was inundated with tributes to a cat who clearly left a big impression on everyone who met him. Christmas isn't a season. It's a feeling. Whatever form your family takes... That's what Christmas is about. There's absolutely no reason why the film A Christmas Gift from Bob should have been made at all, apart from public demand, I suppose. So, um, Mr Bowen, what does the big day hold in store for you? Oh, you know, uh, turkey with the trimmings, I guess, from front of the TV. Pigs and blankets for him. So nothing special then? Oh, that's, that's pretty special for us. Still, to the credit of the people who made it, they didn't overthink it or squander unnecessary amounts of money on it. The end result is pleasant enough. Everything you'd expect, in other words, from a Christmas present from a cat named Bob. (laughs) When author Roald Dahl wrote for children, he made very few concessions to their sensitivities or those of their parents. If he can take it they can take it seemed to be his attitude. Like all great purveyors of fairy tales from Tolkien to the Brothers Grimm, Dahl knew that kids liked as much scary dark as funny light and he gave them both in The Witches. Witches aren't really women at all. They're demons in human shape. In every big city, in every small town, they live amongst us. The Witches was originally set in 80s Britain. For some reason, American director Robert Zemeckis and his co-producer Guillermo del Toro have decided to set their film in Alabama in the 1960s. And since they're there, they might as well go black. My story begins when I was a young boy. You'll be comfy here in your mama's old room. I'd do anything for her to be here right now. Grandma was a tough lady with a big heart. There seem to be two good reasons for this. Our hero, a small boy who's never named, is voiced in flashback by comedian Chris Rock, reprising his role in the popular TV series Everybody Hates Chris. And Grandma is played by the always-welcome Octavia Spencer, who seems to have a lock on feisty older women in the 1960s in films like The Shape of Water, The Help and Hidden Figures. And little by little... She brought me out of my sadness. Now if you feel that you can't go on, darling. I didn't know it. But there was a dark shadow looming nearby. Once we establish that witches are on the horizon, all we need to ask is how big they're going to play it. Well, that question is soon answered when Anne Hathaway is ushered on stage by Stanley Tucci. Witches. They're real. And they hate children. Welcome. Setting the controls to outrageous, Anne takes off in all directions, aided by Robert Zemeckis' computerised animation of her hands, feet and a very big mouth. Anne's contribution, possibly a tribute to Roald Dahl's Scandinavian forebears, is to play the Grand High Witch with a ridiculously over-the-top Norwegian accent. What do you do? You terrible mice. Learning all around this hotel. I would call the exterminator. You see, girls? He would exterminate those brats. Uh, rats. We would exterminate the rats the Grand High Witch explains her plan to turn as many children as she can into mice to be bumped off by grown-ups afterwards. Nice. Our hero and his grandma decide to tackle the witches head-on. It's unfortunate that before they can take any practical action, our hero himself is turned into a mouse. Fortunately, he has company. now, oh, my bad. Mice Mice. Whatever There's conventional witches here in the hotel And they have an evil potion They put it in your chocolate My chocolate? Crikey They always spike the chocolate It's standard evil witch procedure a new British friend called Bruno was lured into taking the mousifying potion mixed into chocolate. For old Dahl, you could never have too much chocolate. And it seems Grandma's pet white mouse Daisy used to be a little girl too. So now we've got three mice and one Grandma against about 40 witches. Well, all I can say is, look out, witches. So it was a grand high witch, and she's in this very hotel. We got to do something to turn you back make this right. The Grand High Witch has a room full of potion and she's going to use it to turn every kid in the world into a mouse. We have to help them. But these 2020 witches are treading in some pretty big footprints. The book was first filmed in the 90s by an unlikely but remarkably effective pairing. The co-directors were The Muppets Jim Henson and cult director Nicholas Rogue, better known for adult fare like The Man Who Fell to Earth. you boy we'll never let you get away with your filthy evil plot who's gonna stop me the success of that first film with children and their parents was because it took elements of films like the wizard of oz and Willy wonka and the chocolate factory and then made them darker and funnier Robert Zemeckis and Guillermo del Toro have certainly got the technical smarts, but these witches are never quite as sharp or as evil or, frankly, as novel as their predecessors. doesn't matter who you are or what you look like, as long as somebody loves you. You wouldn't happen to be carrying around a mouse on your person, now would you? A mouse? Mm Mm-hmm. Why on earth would I be carrying around a mouse? Will children, who are, after all, the target audience, be bothered? In the end, the proof of the pudding is who and how many are eating it. However, for what it's worth, Roald Dahl always seemed to me to belong to a very specific period. And that's not now. Well, on that warning that there is no accounting for taste, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.